I know that conspiracy theories are kind of in vogue, but this whole one about me getting COVID during March Madness, just so I can be quarantined, has gone too far. Now it is good to be back. We missed you. Love you guys. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we do recognize that the meadows are fair, the woodlands are fairer still, the black hills are maybe the fairest of all, Lord, but none, none of creation holds a candle to Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to the obedience of Christ on our behalf, Lord, may we adore him in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We can turn to Luke 4, if you have your Bible handy. If not, you can grab that pew Bible in front of you. Colton Corder is a, an author, a blogger to four sermons from each of the nine largest churches in America, and afterwards he, he summarized his findings in an article that he has written, and the point of his findings is not to mock larger churches or to pretend like we are better than everyone else, but his findings were interesting. The thing that stuck out in the article was he said the majority of the sermons you know, four sermons from each of the nine largest churches. They typically took a narrative passage, which is primarily what we're dealing with in the book of Luke and in Bible Hour and First Kings. And he said it was, it was often that they would jump quickly from the narrative to moralizing the story. Now, what does this mean for the way that I live today? Now, as we approach Luke 4, it's tempting to want to do that with the temptation of Christ, pun intended. It would be easy for us to read the text and immediately, quickly jump to the question, now, what does this mean for how I fight temptation? But if we do that, if we jump there too quickly, we miss the main point for which Luke is writing. Luke 4 is not first and foremost, it's not primarily a how-to on resisting temptation. So as we approach the text, we want to ask, what is Luke teaching us here about Christ? Then we will be in a position to consider how we might then live like Christ. So in Luke 4, or really if we want to back up into chapter 3, there's this kind of this three-part prelude to the public ministry of Jesus. And the last time I was able to preach, which turns out to be about three or four weeks ago, we looked at the first and second part, the baptism of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, and then this morning we look at the temptation of Jesus. They kind of form this, again, prelude to the public ministry of Jesus. And we've seen last time that Jesus is publicly revealed to be the Son. This happened at Jesus' baptism where He's baptized, he comes out of the water, the Spirit descends on the Son in the form, or, or like a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven, behold, this is my Son with who I am well pleased. He's the beloved Son. We saw also in the genealogy of Christ that Luke tracks it all the way back to Adam, who is called the Son of God. 
we argued that Luke is making this point that Jesus is the son of Adam and he's the son of God. He's, he's the God-man and he is therefore uniquely qualified to represent God to man and to represent man to God. And this is who Jesus is. And today, the Son, the beloved Son, with whom the Father is well pleased, is put to the test. And so if you're reading this for the first time, you might be wondering, how will this representative do? How will the second Adam perform when he is tested? Will he be the faithful Son to the Father, or will he be like Adam and fail? So our text opens with some some introduction to the temptations. Luke really sets the stage here for this heavyweight showdown between Jesus the Son and the devil himself. So look in verses 1 and 2 first. We see the setting for the temptations. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. We notice, first of all, two references to the Holy Spirit in verse 1. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led by the Spirit. Luke has been hammering over and over again this emphasis of the Spirit's role in in the the incarnation of Christ and now in the ministry of Christ. It's really hard to miss in the first three, four chapters that Luke has emphasized the role of the Spirit. Just in chapter 3, Jesus is anointed with the Spirit. Here it's said He's full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. Again, we need to consider the the nature of Jesus as the God-man. He's fully human and fully divine. Jesus did not lose an ounce of His divinity when He came to this earth. He did, however, take on the fullness of humanity. So we argued from Luke 3 that Jesus will perform His ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. That in order to fully sympathize with human weakness. He will depend on the Spirit for ministry, for the fulfillment of His mission, and for the resisting of temptation. His life is lived in full submission to the Spirit of God in direct fulfillment of the will of the Father. Hebrews 9.14 says that it's through the eternal Spirit that Jesus offered Himself without blemish to God. One commentator commenting on Hebrews 9 makes the connection between the the author of Hebrews' view of the Spirit and Luke's view of the Spirit here. He says, It seems that the Spirit empowered and strengthened Jesus to give Himself to God as a sacrifice. Such a notion fits with Luke's conception of the Spirit's work in the life of Jesus, where His ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the one who has been made like us in every respect, yet without sin, is full of the Holy Spirit. He's empowered, directed by the Spirit. Again, that doesn't take away one ounce from the divinity of Christ. So being directed by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, He's led out into the wilderness. This is not Jesus finding Himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
This is not him carelessly putting himself in the way of temptation. This is a divine appointment. From man's perspective, from perhaps Satan's perspective, it sure seemed like the devil's the initiator in this. But this is God's appointed testing of the Son. Jesus is led out by the Spirit. And He's led into the wilderness. This isn't some Rocky Mountain cabin in the Evergreens. This is the barren, rocky, desolate Judean desert. And for 40 days, the text says, Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted, the passage says. For 40 days, being tempted. It seems like then that the three temptations that we're going to deal with in a moment uh, are sort of the culmination the climax temptations that Jesus has been tempted throughout these 40 days. It's not that He just went three for three. I think He's being tempted during the entirety of the time in the wilderness, and we get, a, we get three examples here. Perhaps the, the climax of the temptations. While out there in the desert, Jesus is fasting. He's abstaining from food. I don't know if the children's Bible hour classes just walked through this text or not, but Harrison recently said to me that you need to eat within 40 days, Dad. And I said, why? He said, because if you don't, you will die. <laughs> I don't know if, Sean, you taught, taught him that or not. but While out there, Jesus is fasting. He's focusing on prayer, communion with the Father. And after 40 days, the text says he's hungry. And that leads us into the temptations. Forty days of testing has led to this, this culmination. And the devil aims where he believes Jesus will be weak, where you and I would certainly be weak. Food. So the first temptation, we see whereas we doubt, where we have failed, Jesus relies on the Father's provision. Look in verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 3 then gives us a second mention of the devil. We should pause and consider who Satan is. He is a created angel. This is not two equal foes facing off. This is not the power of good and evil colliding. This is Christ, the creator of all things, who holds creation in His hand and sustains it. And a created angel named Satan. Satan rebelled against God. Many angels joined him in his rebellion. He first shows up in Genesis 3, tempting Adam and Eve to rebel against their creator, He's described as the enemy of God, a liar from the beginning, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. First Peter says he roams around seeking whom he may devour. So as the, the enemy of Christ meets him in the wilderness and tempts the Son of God. Notice that, that Luke has just went through this painstaking writing to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. And what's Satan's first words? If 
you are the Son of God. From the beginning, Satan has sought to undermine the Word of God. God the Father spoke from heaven, suggesting and stating that Jesus is the Son, and here comes Satan to undermine it. If you are the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Now, Jesus was hungry, and He had the power as God in the flesh to turn stones into bread. Jesus will later use His power to turn or to multiply food in a miraculous way. So we're left asking then, what is the temptation? If Jesus could legitimately take care of His hunger, what is the deal? I think we get our answer if we think about the the passage that Jesus quotes in verse 4. That man shall not live by bread alone. If we think about the the, the verse that Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 8, we get our answer as to the nature of the temptation. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is imploring Israel to obey God on the basis of... uh, This exhortation, remember the faithfulness of the Lord. He is going to care for you. I know we brought you out into the wilderness. There's no food to be seen, but remember the faithfulness of the Lord. He will care for you. Remember Him and do not fail to obey Him. This is is Moses' exhortation to the people before they enter the promised land. Do not forget the Lord's care and faithfulness. He demonstrated and provided manna for the people of Israel when they had no food. So the temptation here, I think, is to to doubt the Lord's provision and care, and therefore to doubt the faithfulness of the Father. The temptation is, Jesus, take matters into your own hands and make right what the Father has allowed to be wrong here. You are hungry. Fix it. The devil whispers, God has abandoned you in the wilderness. It's time to look out for number one. It's time to take matters into your own hand. Rebel against the Father. Feed your desire for food and find real life, Jesus. Find real satisfaction. And so in quoting Deuteronomy, Jesus is affirming that His life is not dominated by physical desires, even even natural desires like the desire for food, but he is affirming that real life is found in doing the will of God. He said such in in John chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me to accomplish His work. And so Jesus obeys. He trusts the Father's provision and care. And before we move on, I... I think there's really these two contrasts with Old Testament figures that Luke wants us to see. The first contrast is with Israel. We've talked about Deuteronomy and how Israel has failed in the wilderness. There's clues in the text, right? There's clues in the text that we are supposed to make this connection in our mind. This isn't just some stretch or some demonstration that, ooh, look at the parallels I can find in Scripture. I think we can demonstrate that Luke wants us to make this connection in our mind. 
They're here. So in the same chapter that Jesus just quoted, Israel is where? Or Moses is recollecting their uh, travels where? In the wilderness, where they were tested. And now Jesus is in the wilderness, being tested. Uh, Moses mentions in Luke or Deuteronomy 8 that they were in the wilderness 40 years. Luke draws attention to the fact that Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness. The temptation is to doubt God's provision of food. Israel doubted God's provision of food and grumbled. So I think there's some clear parallels in the text that's meant to draw us back to Israel. and Remember their failure in the wilderness to obey God when they were tested. Whereas Israel failed to trust the Lord's provision and care, Jesus succeeds in trusting the Father's provision and care. Whereas Israel grumbled just right after being released from Egypt, Israel was called to be a light to the nations, and instead they grumbled in the wilderness, doubted God's care and provision, and therefore God's faithfulness. I think we're supposed to see that in the, in, in the text. And there's another, I think, Old Testament parallel that we are meant to pick up on, and that's Adam. The reference to Jesus as the Son of God draws our attention back to the end of chapter 3. If you remember, the, the last words in chapter 3 are Adam, the Son of God. So again, I think Luke is intentionally helping us to see that Jesus is the beloved Son. Adam was the created Son who failed. He, he rebelled. Jesus is the beloved Son with whom the Father is well pleased. He's the second Adam. He's the representative of man. So there's this drama in the text. And of course, we know how the passage ends because we've read it and we've heard it a number of times. But if, again, if you're reading it for the first time, the one who's come to reverse the curse. He's here. Will he, will he fare better than Adam? You know, if circumstances were the determining factor in temptation, Jesus would be in a world of hurt. Adam was tempted in a literal paradise, the Garden of Eden. Adam had an abundance of trees from which to feed. He was given one prohibition. Yet he failed. The same tempter now facing Jesus whispered to Eve, and Adam was presumably present that God is not trustworthy. You've got to take matters into your own hands. His word cannot be relied on. He has not fully provided for you. So partake of the forbidden fruit. And they fail. And Jesus is in the wilderness no food in sight, has been fasting for 40 days, yet he obeys. Jesus affirms the trustworthiness, the reliability, the truthfulness of God's Word and obeys the will of the Father. He trusts the Father's provision and chooses to feed on His real food to do the will of the Father. So in round one, Jesus obeys, he succeeds, he spurns the temptation of opting to eat, instead opting to eat his real food, the will of the Father. The devil, however, is not done. 
He reaches into his arsenal, his bag of tricks, and he comes up with a second temptation, tempting towards false worship. You see, whereas we in our sin worshipped false gods, Jesus refuses false worship. Look in verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, To you I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan's second temptation, his second uh, trick, involves showing Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Takes Jesus up, whether that's a, a vision or physically went up. It doesn't really change the meaning of the passage. He shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and says, look at all this. I can give you this. It's within my authority to give you the world. And it raises the question, can Satan legitimately offer this to Christ? Well, we know that the the devil has sway in this world. He has authority in this world. He's called the ruler of this world several times by the Apostle John. He's called the God of this world by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4. So we would say that Satan does have a level of authority, although what he is offering is a shabby substitute to what has been promised to Jesus. What he will inherit when he fulfills God's plan. So the temptation is really twofold here, that, that Satan shows him the kingdoms of this world, shows him the nations, but the second part of the temptation is this, this condition. So Satan, the, the tempter, the trickster, he holds out the, the bait, and then he hits him with, if, you can have all this, if, if you will worship me, he seeks Satan does to break the unity of the Father and the Son. If Jesus would renounce His allegiance to the Father and give it to Satan, then all all the kingdoms could be His. But we know that the kingdoms have already been promised to Jesus. So what is the nature of this temptation? The temptation is to achieve what has been promised to Jesus through false worship. To achieve what has been promised to Jesus through false worship. He's offered the kingdom. He's offered the nations without having to walk the path of fulfilling the will of the Father, which will be a path of suffering for Christ. Jesus' obedience will cost Him. It will cost Him His life. He will die a horrific death, bearing the weight of sin on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God half of the elect, then and then all authority in heaven and earth are given to Christ. And He awaits a day where He returns and visibly rules. We read this promise in Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of His kingdom there will be no end. The kingdom has been promised to Christ. 
But the path to this rule involves suffering and death. So we see the, the nature of the temptation is to, to receive without walking the path of suffering and in obedience to the Father's will, the nations. In a distorted world, this might seem like a deal. If Christ is not the Son of God, this might seem like a deal. You can imagine Satan the tempter, the trickster, the destroyer from the beginning trying to sell Jesus on this. You can have all this. All you have to do is fall down and worship. It's like a bad infomercial. You know, when the, the screen goes black and white and this lady with frazzled hair is trying to mop and the bucket spills and everything goes wrong. But for one easy payment of $19.99, you can have this new thing. It's not going to cost you. It can all be yours. This is Satan's pitch to Jesus. Why go through the suffering? Why go through the hardship of walking in accordance with God's will for just one small payment of bowing the knee to me? I can, I can give it to you. It can all be yours. And we get Jesus' answer in verse 8. Not surprisingly, Jesus obeys. Again, He cites Scripture. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. God alone is worthy of worship and total allegiance. Satan is not only created, he's not only an angel, but he's evil, and he's unworthy of worship. He will bow his knee to Christ, yet he is asking Jesus to bow the knee to him. Jesus, here in his answer, he's summarizing another passage from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve. Again, similar context to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses is trying to prepare the people for the promised land. He warns them repeatedly that when they enter the promised land, that they're going to have nice houses, nice food, they're going to have all these things, and they're going to be tempted to forget the Lord their God. So he implores them in Deuteronomy, when you enter the promised land, remember the Lord. Remember the Exodus. Remember the Lord's commandments. Remember the faithfulness of the Lord. He implores them to love the Lord their God with their whole heart, to fear Him, and to worship Him alone. Do not give in to the idols that are going to be present when you enter into the promised land. Yet we know Israel's history. We're walking through it in Bible hour that they have a track record of breaking the first commandment to have no other gods before Yahweh. They continually spurned the Lord and built altars to foreign gods, bowed down to them, hoping that this, this statue that they erected will provide for them crops and children and all the good things that they wanted. By and large, there were periods of obedience, but by and large, Israel failed to hear Moses' warning in Deuteronomy. They failed to drive out the people in the promised land and therefore gave themselves over to the idols that were present there. And if we're meant to make this connection between Israel and even all the way back to Adam, we might suggest this, that Adam and Eve didn't erect any statues 
Satan didn't ask them to bow down, but he did tempt them to elevate themselves to the position of God. You can be like God. You can know good and evil. If you eat this, you will become like Him. They wanted that. They desired that. They gave themselves over to that. They were tempted to false worship. And they failed. Yet we see Christ in the wilderness. Here He obeys again. As God in the flesh, He cannot... He cannot um, go against his nature. He cannot deny himself and worship Satan. So he, he quotes Scripture and walks in obedience. And that brings us to our third round, our third temptation. Satan digs around in his bag of tricks. He has one more attempt left in him. Round three, we test God. Jesus trusts the Father. Look in verse, verses 9 to 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test location of this third temptation is the pinnacle of the temple. This is likely the southeast corner of the temple that overlooked the Kidron Valley, 450 feet below. There was a Jewish historian named Josephus who recorded that when you look over the edge here, you get nauseous, you get dizzy because the fall is dizzying. And it's here that Satan again seeks to question the identity of Jesus. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. They're at the temple. The presence of, of the Lord dwells in the temple. Jump, Jesus. Your Father doesn't have far to go to, to rescue you. Surely if you jump, He will come to your rescue. If you are who you say you are, then jump. You don't have anything to worry about. Satan even resorts to one of his tried and true tactics, and that is quoting Scripture out of context. We've heard Jesus say twice now, it is written. Now what does Satan say? It is written. He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes Psalm 91. It's an affirmation of the protection of God. He is a refuge. He is a fortress. He is a shelter. He hears from the righteous in their time of trouble, and He rescues the righteous ones. So does Satan have Jesus here? He quoted Scripture after all. We know the answer. We know the answer. He doesn't have Jesus. But, but why? Why? Let me just give two quick thoughts on, on the authority of Scripture. Number one is this. Scripture, taken out of context and assigned a meaning that it was never intended to have, has no more authority or power to change your life than Shakespeare or the latest edition of the Custer County Chronicle. Scripture out of context is not 
powerful because it's not God's intended meaning of that passage. That's why we talk often. We've got to have a baseline. How do we decide? How do we decide whether Satan is right here or maybe there's, maybe, there's false teachers out there? How do we decide whether what we're hearing is, is true and right? Well, the, we have to have a baseline for that. And that's why we talk often about discovering the meaning that's intended in the passage. Not just being able to rip something out of its context and make it say what I wanted to say. That's why, and I don't mean to make fun here, and I don't mean to be sarcastic, but we won't sit around in, in Bible study and ask, what does this mean to you? We would rather ask simply, what does it mean? Because we understand the text has a meaning. It's our job to find and discover the meaning. That way, we don't look at Psalm 91 and say, well, what does this mean to you? And we say, well, to me, that means I should jump off the building here because Satan or the Lord rescues the righteous. So that's one thought. A second thought is this. The Word of God is authoritative in your life. The sort of logical or sometimes illogical inferences that we draw from Scripture are not authoritative in our life. And here's what I mean. Don't, don't misunderstand. Satan didn't misquote Psalm 91. He misapplies it. He quoted it right. He says, God will protect you, which is true. And then he says, so jump. Well, the so jump part is not authoritative. Because it's a, it's a connection that Satan sought to draw from the text. Okay, so we need to be dogmatic where God is dogmatic, and we're not dogmatic where God is not. I saw that this week I was disappointed to see that on social media, a bunch of Christians were encouraging someone to leave their church because the pastors were asking their people to wear masks. And they threw around a lot of texts. Oh, we're not, we're not given a spirit of fear. So then they made this, so there's a text, and then they make this connection. So your pastors are afraid. So you should leave. Well, again, they're quoting Scripture, but they're making some kind of logical conclusion that I don't think we have the authority to make that conclusion. So I just want us to be careful. Um... We made our decision as elders not to require a mass. Um, but we didn't go to Scripture and say, we're going to justify our position by pulling some Scripture out of context and saying, if you disagree, you're in sin. We did what we thought was best for our church, in our city, in our state, in our country, and that's what it was. So here's what I'm getting at. That's just an illustration. To be dogmatic, where Scripture is not dogmatic, is to go beyond Scripture. And we can't claim the authority of Scripture when we go beyond it. We can have opinions, and we can have uh, leanings, but when we go beyond Scripture, we're in this realm of wisdom. What do we think is best? What do you think we should do? But we don't come down with the authority of Scripture when Scripture is not dogmatic on that point. And that's where I think Satan is wrong. 
He quotes the Scripture right. But he draws this conclusion that's not drawn from the text. He misapplies Scripture trying to trick Jesus into thinking that under the authority of God's Word, you have to jump. He's trying to bring an authority that is not in the text. But we're left, again, with the question, what is the temptation? The temptation is to test the Lord. Find out for sure if He's faithful. Isn't there a little bit of doubt in your mind, Jesus, that the Father will take care of you? Here's a way to know for sure. Jump. And if He saves you, you, you'll you'll know for sure then. To test the Lord is, is to try to put Him in a position where He provides for you on your terms. That's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do there. If I jump, I put God in this position where He either has to act or not. And it's on my terms. Jesus' answer shows that um, this is the temptation we're dealing with. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 again, verse 16. The full verse reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. What happened at Massa? Israel grumbled against the Lord. They were complaining about what He had provided and not provided. They demanded water and so put the Lord to the test, asking, is the Lord among us or not? If He is, He'll provide for us this way. And that's what the temptation is here. Jump, Jesus. Find out if the Lord is among you or not. Jesus' response and quotation of Deuteronomy demonstrate once again that Jesus always fully rests on the promises and faithfulness of the Father. To jump would have been, would have been unbelief masquerading as faith. It would have been unbelief masquerading as faith. It's like buying a house you can't afford and say, well, I'm just trusting the Lord. That might not be faith. It isn't trusting and resting in God's provision. It's fulfilling our desires and disguising it as faith. So Jesus obeys the Father fully, trusting God's providential care. Um, He has, really, Jesus has singularly set His focus on fulfilling the will of the Father. And we see it over and over and over again. So Satan departs in verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The words every temptation remind us, I think again, that the temptations we've walked through are are most likely the culmination of 40 days. He has finished every temptation. This is a comprehensive testing of the Son of God, and it resulted in overwhelming victory. Jesus is the one who succeeds. In fact, Jesus is the only one in Luke who faces direct temptation and succeeds. Utterly defeated. Satan departs. You can imagine him forced to admit complete and utter failure. Walking away having been put to shame by Christ. 
We'll come back to verse 13 in a moment, but I want to walk through a few implications quickly from, from the text. If you have notes, I think I wrote these out for you. The first implication, I think the first thing we're supposed to get from this text is Jesus passed where Israel and Adam failed. We argued from Luke 3 that Adam is a representative. Jesus has come as the second Adam, the second representative. Adam was tempted in a literal paradise, tempted in the garden and failed, implicating the whole human race because he stood as a representative for all those who would come through his line, which is everybody since Adam and Eve were the first people created. Jesus was tempted in the desert, in the wilderness, as the second Adam, as the representative of man, as your representative, and he passed. And this is absolutely necessary because it teaches us when Jesus does go to the cross that he is actually able to represent man before God. Because he has his own righteousness that he then credits to all those who turn to him in faith and repentance. You see, you and I, we we walked in the footsteps of Adam. We walked in the likeness of Israel. We looked for life outside of God's counsel. None of us here can say that, yes, the will of the Father is my food and has been from the day I was born. We turned to false worship and idols. We were of our father, the devil. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, Paul says in Ephesians 2. We worshiped falsely. We put the Lord, our God, to the test. And what does God choose to do? God takes upon himself the righteous requirement of the law. He perfectly obeys the law and takes the punishment that the law demands. Jesus is the hero of the story who's come to rescue his people. Sometimes people have said, oh, well, the the atonement, Jesus paying the price for our sins on the cross, that's like divine child abuse. But it neglects who Jesus is. Jesus isn't a three-year-old who's outside of his own volition. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus is God. He's not a, a helpless little child. Son of God is a title. It's a designation. So he is the one who's come to take in himself the righteous requirement of the law and the penalty that the law demands as the hero to rescue his people from their sins. And we would otherwise perish without this hero. Jesus is the obedient son that Adam should have been. Jesus is the obedient um, people that Israel was meant to be. He is the faithful representative. Um, Calvin wrote about this. He said it this way, Man, who by his disobedience had become lost, should by way of remedy counter it with obedience, satisfy God's judgment, and pay the penalties for sin. That's what, that's what we would have had to do. Well, we can't. Accordingly, our Lord came forth as true man and took the person and the name of Adam in order to take Adam's place in obeying the Father. 
to present our flesh as the price of satisfaction to God's righteous judgment and in the same flesh to pay the penalty that we had deserved. So we, we look to Christ for our righteousness. He obeyed where we could never obey, and He took the penalty that we deserve to take, and so we look to Christ for our righteousness. I think one just quick implication of this text is that we, as, as God's people, as those who look to Christ for righteousness, we should strive, and we, we really ought to be, but the flesh pulls us. We, we ought to be the most humble. What's the opposite of self-righteous? The most humble, least self-righteous people in the world. It's hard to look down on others when we're looking up to Christ for our own righteousness. There's nothing in us. There's nothing in us that would avail us to God's grace and kindness and love. Jesus is our righteousness because He is the obedient Son who stands as our representative. When He acted, He acted on our behalf. When He obeyed, it was being credited as your righteousness. When He died, He was bearing the wrath that that we deserved. So Christ has succeeded where we and Adam and Israel have failed. There's a second question, I guess, that arises in the text that I want to wrestle with. I told Dave that I don't want to preach for an hour, but I've had three weeks to write this sermon. So, (laughs) The reason Jesus did not sin is different than the reason Jesus could not sin. The reason Jesus did not sin is different than the reason he could not sin. I want to make the argument that these are real temptations for Jesus, yet he was incapable of sinning. He was impeccable. But he endured every temptation to its utter defeat. So the the, the triune God cannot be in division. God cannot deny himself. So Jesus is incapable of sin. But we would be theological simpletons than to say, if Jesus cannot sin, then his temptation must not have been a real temptation. Surely he didn't feel the weight of temptation. So I've got two illustrations that I think will help us. The first illustration, I think, helps us see that Jesus, having defeated every temptation to its bitter end, actually understands temptation better than us who give in so quickly. The first illustration is, Mount Everest. You and I are going to climb Mount Everest. You are a superior climber to me in every way. So you make it to the top. I'm still covering, recovering from COVID. You do it without any supplemental oxygen. You just waltz right up there. But you have conquered the mountain. You've endured the cold. You've made it through the exhausting days. You've crossed the dangerous crevices, or if you're a stuck-up climber, a crevasse. The avalanches, you've survived, all of it. You conquered the mountain. You made it. I, on the other hand, I was on oxygen at base camp. I made it a third of the way up the mountain and decided it's too cold up here. Why would anybody do this? And now we sit down for coffee after our big climb, and It's unfair for me 
to assume that you and I have the same level of knowledge and experience in climbing Mount Everest. Why? Because you conquered and I failed. You made it to the top and I gave in. So you understand the trials. You understand the hardship to a greater degree than I do. So I would suggest Jesus understands temptation to a greater degree even though he's impeccable and incapable of sinning, because he endured every temptation to the bitter end and stared it down to its utter defeat. We've given in. We continue to give in. We've failed so we don't fully comprehend the way that Jesus does. A second illustration I think hopefully will help us understand Jesus' inability to sin as God but that's not the primary reason Jesus did not sin. Bruce Ware, um, I'm borrowing a statement from him when I say the reason Jesus did not sin is different than the reason Jesus could not sin. He could not sin because he's fully God. He did not sin because he resisted every temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Imagine a swimmer who's going to set out to swim from Cuba to Florida. Now, that's a long swim, 90 miles or so. And the lady who's going to do this swim knows that it'd be foolish just to hop in the water and just swim all the way to Florida. So in order to achieve, achieve her goal, she has a boat that's going to follow her along the way in her journey. That way, if she exhausts herself, they can rescue her. She begins in Cuba, and she swims, and she swims, and she swims, and she swims, and she crawls out on the Florida coast, having completed her goal. She didn't rely on the boat at the end of the day. Similarly, I think we could understand Christ's temptations this way. We could say this about the lady. She could not drown because the boat was there. She did not drown because she kept swimming. She could not drown because the boat was there. She did not drown because she kept swimming. So I think we could understand Christ's temptations this way. He could not sin because he was God. He did not sin because he relied on the power of the Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer throughout his ministry to fulfill the will of the Father. Now, every illustration is weak. So don't draw too many comparisons there. Get caught up in that. I'm simply making the point, Jesus did not sin because he chose not to sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. Third and last, I think now we're in a position, we understand what the text is teaching us about Jesus. Now we're in a position to ask, how does this change the way I live? Number three, if we're right about Christ, enduring temptation, then we have the same benefits that Jesus relied on to defeat temptation in the Holy Spirit, the Word, and prayer. As God incarnate, as the God-man, fully man and fully God, Jesus is more than our example. He's not less than our example. So we should avail ourselves. If Jesus prayed, we ought to pray. And I think we can assume from the text since he's fasting, and the purpose of fasting is to pray that Jesus availed himself to prayer. And we see other places in the Gospels where Jesus is praying. We ought to avail ourselves to the Word. Jesus quoted Scripture 
and fighting temptation. And I, and I would just say it this way. We are not above our master. We are not above the Lord Jesus Christ. He was led by the Spirit. He was dependent on the Word of God. He prayed often to the Father. And we've been given everything. We've been given everything we need in Christ to defeat temptation. The Word, the Spirit, and the prayer, they beat bad circumstances every time. They beat um, our own inclinations. Beyond that, we have a high priest in Jesus who sympathizes with us. He pleads for us. He invites us through His work to approach the throne of grace. He was tempted like as we are, so He's beyond equipped to help us in our temptations. John Owen said, Christ is inclined from His own heart and affections to give us help and relief. And He is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense of fellow feeling of them. He's a sympathetic high priest. So we are not above our Master. We turn to the Word and we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to change our affections, to change our desires, and we plead with God in prayer. We see, again, Jesus is so much more than an example, but He's not less than that. He resisted every temptation to the bitter end, and so Satan departs. And the end of the text says, He departed until an opportune time. This is foreshadowing. My kids get annoyed with me because we'll be reading a book or watching a movie and it's just this foreboding, obvious foreshadowing. And I'll, say, That's, I'll point out the obvious because I know it drives them crazy. This is foreshadowing. Satan has not completed his attempts at overthrowing the purposes of Christ. And we see this in the book of Luke. It comes to fruition in Luke 22. When the opposition of Jesus ramps up, we see these, these different times in Luke where, where Jesus is casting out demons. But in Luke 22, we see th this ramping up of opposition to Jesus, and it begins with Satan entering Judas. So if you wanted to, you could flip to Luke 22 just quickly. Verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered with the twelve. So we see this again. Here comes Satan trying to overthrow the purposes of Christ. He goes into Judas, and Judas goes on to betray Jesus. In verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Peter would ultimately be restored to Christ, but not before he would go on to deny Jesus. In verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, this is, they've come to arrest Jesus. You did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The opportune time for Satan to oppose Jesus had come at the crucifixion of Christ. However, as we know, the devil walks into his own trap. Jesus says that no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Whether Satan knew it or not, he was accomplishing his own demise by turning Christ over into the hands of sinful men. Those men would crucify Christ, the perfect, obedient, beloved Son of God, killed 
And as He hung on that cross, bearing the wrath and judgment in His own body, and our only hope of laying hold to the benefits, to the righteousness of Christ, is to turn to Him and to embrace Him by faith. That's to willingly announce that I, I bring nothing. I bring the empty hands of faith. I have no good works. I have no righteousness of my own. I confess I'm completely reliant on the work of Christ. If you come to Christ and turn from your sin, you will be saved. Jesus was subsequently resurrected, demonstrating that His death is a sufficient payment for sin. Paul would say He was raised for our justification. Yet something else is happening. When Jesus is resurrected, if you thought Satan walked away in shame in Luke 4, you should have seen Satan in Luke 24 in the resurrection of Christ. The New Testament tells us Jesus triumphs over every evil power. Putting them on display, walking them through the city as as a defeated enemy. The opportune time for testing the death of Christ and Satan walks into his own trap. There's no question. There's no question about the victor. This doesn't go to the judges. This isn't a toss-up. Jesus completely and utterly defeats Satan. And he has done it on our behalf. So this morning we can rest in the righteousness of Christ and then we can work we, we can rest in His provision of righteousness and we can work to fight and to battle every temptation. We can be energized by the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the righteousness of Christ. It's credited to our account by faith, not by our own works, not by our own efforts. May we rest in that, Lord. May we not seek to justify ourselves. May we not forget our hope is in Christ and in Him alone. And Lord, may we fight. May we fight against the pull of our flesh. May we fight against the pull of this world, of the prince, the power of the air. May we walk in obedience to Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen.